Um, looks like Julie Smith is heading back there, or Ted Smith's heading back there. Um, encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, it's a great program. Um, we try to do our best with our limited resources um, to, to take care of kids and families, really people in different ages, um, to help everyone come into full, robust worship um, of our resurrected Savior, Jesus. And so we've got nursery in the back. We've got a wiggle giggle room in the middle. We've got children's um, worship over here. Um, we try to make our service um, even intelligible if you're visiting with us and maybe you're new to um, the way we do our liturgy or maybe you're not even a Christian and um, you're wondering what Christians are about. Um, I don't want our service to be confusing to you. And so try to give some commentary um, across the way and as we go. And so this is the portion of the service where we study the Bible together. Um, it is the, the sermon portion. If you want to turn your Bibles to the book of Galatians um, in chapter 3, that's where we are. Where we are will be in verses 15 um, down through 25. Um, a little bit of an introduction before we dive into that particular verse. Um, Paul had been through Galatia. Um, a church had been started there. Um, folks, Gentiles, um, not Jews, who had come to faith and believed that they were made right before God by the finished work of Jesus alone. Um, some Jews came in afterwards and said, yeah, 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 Jesus is great and all. We are pro-Jesus, um, but you've really got to do all this Jewish stuff too if you're going to be right with God. And so they said things like, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to eat with certain types of people and in certain kinds of ways. On um, the presumption, they were talking about other things. And so it isn't just that they were becoming ethnically Jewish in their religious practices. Um, Paul thought that was a kind of a big deal, not a huge deal, but kind of a big deal. Um, he thought you could give or take that. Um, but what they were saying was, you're not made right by the finished work of Jesus. There's something you have to do in addition to that. And to Paul, that was a big deal. That was something to get sideways with people over. That was something to write blog posts about. That was something to fuss and fight and make a phone call um, about. And so Paul is doing that and writing this, later, this letter to the church at Galatia to these Christians saying, listen, faith has always been by grace alone um, in Christ and not by what you do. And so that's the commentary. And what we've found, especially in the past 2,000 years of the experiment of this thing called the church, is that we have continued even when we're not dealing with Gentile Israel issues, to struggle with wanting to obey and do things to make God happy with us, and that we always will. That is the natural bent of the human heart. It is the default of the human heart to, to go in that direction. If you remember computers, we used to update our operating systems, um, and we'd have to reset all of our defaults. So you work with a computer, you know, you've got it, it does exactly what you want it to do. Sometimes you sit down on somebody else's computer and it doesn't click right or, you know, whatever else. And it used to be, every time you installed a new operating system, you'd have to go back through and set it the way you wanted it. Um, well, what Paul says and what Martin Luther said and what others have said is every day you wake up and your defaults go back to trying to earn God's salvation by your works. And so every day you've got to go into the preference pane of your, of your heart and click again saved by faith, not by works, saved through the finished work of Jesus. Um, and that's why Paul's writing Galatians, and that's why Galatians has been such a powerful book through um, the years. And so what's going to happen this morning is that Paul is going to ask um, two questions, and, um, and then he's going to make three statements that are the same. He's just going to make them in different ways, and we're just going to use that for what we're going through. Um, as I said in earlier about catechesis, you really can't learn something without a question. Um, but there are some really big questions in the Christian faith that you will ask at one time, even if you don't ask it now. And so you might not be wondering this morning about law versus grace 
or what to do with the Old Testament commandments. That might not be a big deal to you, but at some point in your walk as a Christian, it should. Figure out, well, how much do I have to obey? What do I do with the Ten Commandments? You know, can I wear polycotton blends? What do I do with shellfish? Can I eat roadkill or not? Do I need to kill bulls and establish a new temple? What do I do with all of these laws in the Old Testament? And if I do them, is God happy with me? Or is he just happy with me based on Jesus? So eventually it becomes a question. And so I hope this morning um, that you'll consider, even if it wasn't a big deal coming in, and you'll kind of tag this to think through, law and grace rules and living by by faith and how do those things go together and so what Paul's doing um, he's doing what a a seminary professor of mine used to do which was unnerving to students Um, what would happen he was an apologetics teacher and um, we would think that we had like the stump the teacher question Um, I'm sure maybe y'all who are teachers have students that do that every once in a while you know they they think they have this question that's completely going to stump you and um, and leave you wondering oh no Everything's falling apart. My degree's worthless. I had a sixth grader stump me with a question about whatever it is. Well, our professor, and you can imagine how seminary students would do that. You know, a bunch of guys just out of undergrad come in, think they know everything, um, and they walk into seminary classes. And so what would happen is we would have this, you know, this is a difficult question or an ethical dilemma, um, and we'd ask it. And he would do this unnerving thing where he'd say, hold on a second. Um, I don't think you've asked that question well enough. And he would actually make the question better he would actually create more problems than we had even thought of. So by the time he had done it, you were like, oh yeah, I wish I'd asked that question. That's really gonna stump him. And then he would completely demolish it. Um, and, and that was how he dealt with us. And it was great for our humility um, and knocking down our pride. And Paul's doing that here. And so he's asking, well, if it's by grace, well, why the law at all? You know, did God miss it? Why did he give any law if he's saved by grace? And if, if we're saved by grace, and it's all based on what Jesus has done, well, is the law bad? Is it some competing thing? And so Paul's kind of building up the arguments that the Gentiles are saying, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and then he's going to completely decimate it, um, as you'll see as we move our way through. And so that's a little bit of introduction as we dive in um, this morning. This is Galatians 3, um, chapter 3, verses 15 to 25. This is the word of our God. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, It no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Stop there. We'll pick up with that last verse um, next week. And so, since this is the word of God, our God, why don't we pray this morning before we consider it. Father, 
Um, you are not silent. You didn't just create the world that we would look at it in its complexity and say there must be a God and we do not know him, but you created all things and then you revealed yourself to us and brought your word into the world and saved a specific people and brought a guy like Paul through whom you wrote parts of this book called the Bible that we might know you not just 2,000 years ago, but know you now. I pray, Lord, that you would free us from fear and condemnation, that you would give us joy in Jesus Christ, even as we learn from this passage together as a local church. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we come to this, like I said, it's going to be, um, be pretty easy. Two questions and then a statement he makes three times, makes the same statement. The first question, you see it there um, a little bit further on um, after where we left off last week. Why did God give law if he is always saved by grace? If he, always, if, he, if he promised Abraham, listen, I'm just going to love you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to back the dump truck of grace up and just unload the payload. It's going to be totally me, 100%. You don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. I'm going to accomplish it. Why then, 430 years later, did God come to Moses and say, this is the law, this is the Ten Commandments, this is how you're going to structure worship, this is theocratic Israel, these are my requirements that I require from you, and if you don't do it, then you're going to end up in exile twice. Why? If grace, why then law? And Paul very simply says the reason that he added law, that God added law, was to show transgressions. And I'll give you an illustration um, to prove my point. Um, I wonder how many of you broke a traffic law this morning. Show of hands. Just kidding. I wonder how many of you sped a little bit this morning. I wonder how many of you maybe rolled through um, a stop sign. I wonder how many of you maybe changed lanes without using your blinker. I wonder how many of you have a, a taillight out um, this morning. Now, if we, I did have you raise hands, and I said, now, how many of you received a ticket for your traffic violation? Hands would go down. Now, the question is, were you in violation when you got the ticket? Or when you were doing things that you knew were wrong in comparison to the, the law of driving in our land? And you know the answer. You, you knew that there were violations where you were doing them, and you still did them. But there comes a point in time where the law impresses it upon you and there are blue lights in your rearview mirror and there's a ticket in your window when all of a sudden it is confirmed that you're an unsafe driver or that you've done things that are not a part of the legal code of driving in Virginia. But if there were no such thing as police officers, but there was still this code of safe driving, you might be thinking that, well, it's not a big deal. I'm not really in violation. I mean, five miles over isn't really over. I mean, it's just kind of over. I mean, I'm sure the judge is fine with that and the police are fine with that. I mean, everybody does it. You might say that when in actuality you actually are in violation of the law. And so we need the police. We need laws. We need judges. We need courts. We need tickets to confirm what we already know, that we have a habit of breaking the law when it's convenient for us. So as much as we get angry when we see the police in our rearview mirror or whatever else it is, we know we deserved it. We knew we were doing those things that were wrong. The police have simply confirmed something about us that is unpleasant and uncomfortable that we don't obey the traffic law perfectly or absolutely. And the law that God did, gave did the same thing. He, he loved Abraham by grace. 
He saved Abraham. He made promises to Abraham that he would bring about in real time, even though the Savior hadn't arrived. And what he needed Abraham to see and those who would follow Abraham as his people is that he needed them to see that they actually were sinners, that they actually needed a Savior. He needed something to show them that there was something about them that needed fixing that there was an illness that they were suffering from because they were prone to not see it and think that they were fine. And so God brought Moses into the history of Israel and brought the nation state of Israel on different laws and God revealed part of his character. So it wasn't just capricious. God didn't just throw a dart dart at the possible laws that could be. The laws said who he was. And so when God says, don't murder, he didn't say, hey, I have this idea of all the ones, I think you probably shouldn't murder, just this random law I'm giving. He's saying, no, this is about my character. I care about life, so don't murder. And I care about you, so not only don't murder, protect life wherever you find it, and care about health, and build hospitals, and all of these different things. And so this law came as a gracious gift. So, for example, we, I was supposed to have Presbytery this, um, this past um, week, and um, it was canceled because of um, snow and all that, and so we have it um, next week. But I had a friend of mine who I was talking to on the phone, and um, my friend talked to him on the phone and said, hey, listen, um, you know, make sure when you're driving down Highway 81 that if you see um, a police officer pulled off on the side giving someone a ticket, that you go to the left lane and slow down, um, because I got a ticket um, for not doing that. Um, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even know that 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 was a law. Thank you for telling me that I should do that. Um, I should move over to the left lane and and slow down. And so my friend, um, he wasn't being mean to me um, by telling me the law. He was actually helping me and telling me the law because he didn't want me to get a ticket, and he wanted me to help preserve the lives of state troopers that pull people over and um, keep them safe on the road. And so Paul's making this argument that the law's not mean, even though a lot of times when somebody tells us we've done something wrong, our immediate response is defensive, how dare you? Um, The law is actually a kindness. The law is a gift to us, showing us reality of who we are and showing us that we can't keep our lives together, that we do fall short of God's perfect um, standard and making sure that there's not going to be a part of our lives or a point in time where we're going to be convinced otherwise. And so I I could give you all the experiment. I don't suggest it, but you could go home today and decide, all right, I'm going to do the law. Even when you narrow it down to the Ten Commandments, and even when you narrow the Ten Commandments down to not how um, Jesus said the Ten Commandments, so even if it was just a very narrow view of the Ten Commandments, maybe pick two of the the ten, you know, 20% that's still failing. Um, But if you pick two of them, like, I'm going to do those two, they would convict you of how you fall short. They would they would push you to the point of saying, I can't, I'm not enough. I keep getting ticket after ticket after ticket. I've got my driver's license revoked. Next time I'm gonna be wherever the judge sends you after that. (laughs) I keep having impressed upon me that I am failing and I cannot keep this. And to that God says, I want you to remember that salvation right standing with me is not based on how well you drive, but based on the finished work of my son. 
My son has performed every law and perfect. He has paid all of your traffic tickets. He's had his license revoked. He's received the punishment for your infractions so that you can live a life free of the law. Still sing the law, knowing that it's a good way to live, still seeing God in it. So sing the law and saying, my God loves life because he told me not to kill and to love life but no longer being enslaved to the law as a way to earn salvation. The law shows you who you are. Devoid of perfection, devoid of being able to maintain good enough, whatever it is, in any category of your life, and so causing you to cry out, God, help. I need a Jesus. I talk about this with a a Muslim friend of mine, um, he's working to establish a mosque here in, um, in Culpeper. And I, I talked to him. I said, well, what do you do when you sin? And he said, well, I, I pray. And I said, what do you do when you sin a lot? And he said, well, I pray more. Um, and I said, well, how do you know God's forgiven you? And he said, I don't. It, his system has no way. It, it, it has a law, do. And when you've broken it, do more. And hope for the best. There's no one who's paid. And so I tell him, your God's not loving enough. I've picked the more loving God. I've picked the God who has not only said, this is the way things go, but has made a way for me in my imperfection, in my sin, in all of the ways that I wander away from God and hurt others, in all of my pride, in all of my self-loathing, so he'll know that he loves me and that I'm free and that all of those things that seek to condemn me and toss me under a weight of do or fail or enough can finally slough off and walk in freedom and joy. That's what the law did for you. That's what it does. And so that's what he says. And so I, I, I wonder this morning, I just give you this little question. Have you ever allowed the law to show you how precarious your position is without grace? If you're not a Christian um, this morning and you're considering it, it's an important thing to consider. If there is a just God who is perfectly just and you want him to be and you appear before him, how's that going to go? If you demand justice from him and all the people have hurt you and then you demand that same justice for yourself, how's that going to go for you? Or even if you're a Christian, if you could think a moment for what it would be like to stand apart from the gracious mercy of Jesus and to look at God and almost like the Apostle Paul would say, if I'm going to go to God without Jesus, I'm going to demand him to judge me. He must judge me. He must judge me and condemn me to hell because I want him to be that God. And without Christ, I would want him to say that to me. I would need him to say that to me because I have failed and I know I failed. And at least if I'm going to fail, he still has to be God. So if there is no forgiveness, no atonement for sins, I'm going to demand him to use his law to reveal me clearly. People bash Jonathan Edwards all the time because the only famous work that people read in school is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, it's actually an um, amazing sermon. If you read it and read the sermons that he preached on, on either side of it, um, it's an amazing sermon. But that's what he's doing in that sermon. What if we stood without the grace of Jesus? What if we knew we were sinners and God was justly angry over our sin? What would happen at that point? What would that be like? If you don't appreciate being pulled over to the side of the road, you won't appreciate somebody paying your ticket for you. 
if you don't see your need, if you don't let the law judge you as inept and weak and um, sinful and purposely sinful, then you won't see the beauty and wonder that Jesus has provided. And that's what Paul's doing. And the law came to make Jesus beautiful. It did not come so that you'd pick it up and say, I think I can do this. I think at the end of the day, I'm going to go to this law and say, Joe did a pretty good job. And use the law and say, Joe didn't do any of it. Joe is a weak nothing in comparison to the law. But there's this guy, Jesus. That's what the law does. So that was Paul's first question. Second question that he brings, is the law contrary um, to grace? And um, Paul uses his um, little phrase. He says, certainly not. Um, it's really not a, a really good English translation. Um, it's it's meganoito. If you've ever been um, in the Greek, if you've ever been so frustrated that you've been, you, you've been tempted, and none of you would, but you've been tempted to kind of say no with an expletive attached. Like, like the, the, the strongest no that you could, like that is just crazy talk. I can't even believe that you would say that. That's the Greek term, meganoito. And so, you know, in English, we've got to use the word certainly not, where none of you, I think, when you're really angry would say, certainly not. Um, so whatever you would say, um, no, is what he says here. It's emphatic. Um, and so in Romans, when Paul says, listen, some of you said, um, hey, we, we see that God provides grace when we sin. I have an idea. Let's sin as much as we can. We'll get even more grace. Um, Paul's like, meganoito. Certainly not. But no, absolutely. That's idiotic and stupid. And so he says here, is the law opposed to grace? Should we look at the law and hate it and say, ew, law, gross. That was just a long time ago. We don't need to deal with that. Don't really know what the Lord was thinking, but law is kind of bad and ugly. Um, and, and Paul said, no, of course not. Now, we might say that if there was a law that could give life. So if I could give you it this way, and this is how we deal with it, and this is really how we live our lives practically, um, if you think that through doing enough good things, you can earn God's pleasure and grace, there's a law, there's something you can do where at the end, God would say, yep, that one's good. Um, and then over here, there's grace where you fail. What would you do? You'd find yourself kind of going back and forth all week long. Like, okay, doing a pretty good job in this area. You know, being a dad, got that pat. Okay, this other area, not so much. Law here, over here, not doing so good. Needs God's grace. Okay, doing okay law, needs God's grace. I'm getting a little life over here, getting a little life over here. A little bit of righteousness, a little righteousness. And so grace and law together are going to, in the end, combine to provide the life and righteousness and salvation that I need. And Paul's like, There's, there is no law that can do that. It doesn't exist. There is, there is no standard, there's no area of your life, there's no emotion or affection or thought or action that you could bring before God and say, oh, look, a perfect one. This one doesn't need any grace. This emotion, this reflection back on this experience, this way that I've crafted this, this thing that I've done, God, this one can go in the doesn't need grace category. There's no law that, that makes that. It is all by grace. And so God frees you from that, that back and forth, schizophrenic, frenetic, I think I'm doing okay, now I need God's grace. I think I'm doing okay, now I need God's grace. It's just, I need God's grace. I just want to live over here. I want to wake up today and start my day and end my day saying, God may use me to do some good things today, and I am certainly going to fail a lot, but in terms of his smile, in terms of salvation, and sort of usefulness to God's kingdom, 
I'm staying in the grace category because this is where there is life. And that's what the law has done. And that's why it's good. The law has convinced me to stay over here. It's convinced me to live my, my life by grace. So is it contrary? Is the law competing with grace? The law saying, okay, come and try me a little bit. I can at least offer you some. The law saying, please don't come here. Stay away. You cannot use me for salvation in any way. Don't, don't even try. Stay over there with grace. And so law is good and awesome and encouraging um, to us. And so um, lastly, um, he uses three statements. If you're following along in your Bibles in verses 22, 23, and 24, um, he uses imprisoned language, captivated language, jailed language um, for the law, and then how we're free. And so if you read in verse 22, it says the scripture has imprisoned us. Verse 23, before faith, we were captive and imprisoned. Um, and verse um, 24, it said the law was our guardian. Um, back then they would have, um, you can think like really mean nanny. I don't know if anybody has any ideas of really mean nanny. Um, I think about two decades ago, it was like um, nuns in a Catholic school. Um, they, they just, they have this, you know, they're, they're kind of teachers, but have this really bad reputation for being really mean and strict. Um, well, back in the Greco-Roman days, there were these people um, who people would hire to raise their children to be good citizens, and um, they were kind of, you know, marine, kind of in your face, and get these kids to do what they needed. So they had this really bad reputation, and Paul's saying, that's what the law is like. Um, it's, it's not bad, it's, it's good for what it does, but you're not going to enjoy the experience um, at all. And so Paul says, that's what the law does, and he said, the reason that it's done that is to then encourage you, and you see the repetition of the good things um, in each of those verses too. So, verse 23, so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given. Verse 23, that this law is done its imprisoning until the coming faith would be revealed. And verse 24, in order that we might be justified by faith. And so you see, he's moved on from questions, and now he's moved into these statements. Law imprisons, jails, bad school, none, um, so that we would be led to and drawn to Jesus, justified by faith, life to this one who has been revealed. And so Paul is encouraging you as a Christian to live with Jesus and to not use law or works or do or ought or enoughs to try and craft your life, to seek happiness, to be right before God. No, as a Christian, that if you believe that God has given Christ to be your all, you are saved. Not just saved now and might not be tomorrow, but saved. Finished saved because of what Christ has accomplished for you. To give you an illustration, kind of closing um, illustration. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Stanford Prison Experiment. Um, it was conducted in 1971. If you've done any work in psychology or sociology, um, it, is, it is remembered almost infamously um, as a really bad experiment never to be tried again. And um, what this guy did in the psychology department at Stanford is he had this idea um, to test what happens in prisons. And so he, he got, I think it was 21 men and uh, male students, and he told them, listen, would you like to be a part of a psychology experiment? They all said, yes, we would like to be a part of a psychology experiment. He said, great. What's going to happen is sometime in the next two weeks or so, um, we're going to start this experiment, and um, we're going to give you a role to play. You will either be a guard or you will be a prisoner. And we've actually gone down to the bottom floor of the psychology department and we have constructed a prison as best as we can, bars, um, the whole deal. Um, and everybody's like, great, 
you know, I'll, I'll be a part of your psychology experiment. He said, it's going to go on for two weeks, you know, is what it was supposed to go on for. And what, um, what happened was, you know, two weeks, during those two weeks before it started, um, on the day it started, um, they actually brought police cars, um, fake, kind of fake police cars, and the students that were going to be prisoners um, were actually arrested um, physically. They knew it was a part of the, of the experiment, but they, they went through everything you would go through if you were arrested and jailed. And so they were arrested in the car, they were booked, they were given the prison clothes, and actually the clothes that they were given were just um, like hospital um, smocks, and um, they were given little um, bracelets around their right leg. And then the guards were brought in, and the guards were given full police outfits, um, and an important part of the experiment, the guards were given um, gla sunglasses, so they didn't have to make eye contact um, with the students that were playing prisoners. And they put them downstairs in the basement with videos running, and the researchers just started watching what would happen. And um, they were appalled. Um, within just a few hours, um, the guards began, began, began tormenting and harassing the prisoners. The prisoners, the prisoner students, began acting like a prisoner would, experience anxiety, um, experiencing crippling fear. Um, at times, the students would start ratting out other students that were doing wrong things to the guards. Um, and and just, a, I mean, just a few days, the whole thing became very real. And they all not only, just, they weren't play acting, they dove into their roles as guards and as prisoners. After a few days, one of the students asked to be released because he had fallen into such a dark depression. Three more students had to leave over the course of the experiment because they too were fearing physical harm or emotional, psychological harm. He had to shut it down in six days um, shy of the two weeks because he was so fearful that the students would hurt one another. It's crazy. And today it's immortalized as never do this again. But what he found was there was something in the human nature that if I call you a lawbreaker and you see yourself as a lawbreaker and you see your environment as one of a lawbreaker, you will start to live your life like a lawbreaker. You will live your life under guilt and condemnation and depression and fear and seeking the approval of others. If I come in and I call you a law enforcer, your job is to enforce the law. And you build your life around enforcing the law, that you will start harassing others and treating others as less than you, seeing yourself as capable and in charge and control, start doing things you never would think you, were, you would do. Do you see the dangers of the law? Do you see why God didn't want you to live over here? And so many Christians do that. They are saved by the free grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are no longer in prison to the law. They are absolutely free. Their identity is secure. And instead of living in the joy and freedom of being able to enjoy the good things that God's given or even repenting freely of the ways that you failed, they see themselves as lawbreakers or law enforcers. And so as Christians live, them, live their lives under crippling guilt, 100% saved, but living under crippling guilt of never feeling like you're enough, of feeling like your world is a jail cell and that everybody's out to get you, or you see Christians living like law enforcers. My job is to make sure that everybody else does right. I'm going to use the law of God to make sure everybody comes into line. And they have such empty, 
crumbling lives and for the most part hate themselves, even though they'll never admit it. The law never wants you to live over here. The law wants to push you to gracious, joyful living. And so I wonder at this point where you put yourself. Maybe in kind of one of four categories. Maybe you're a non-Christian and you finally have heard what you have thought has been true over a long time. The law has nailed you, not only in the ways you've fallen short, but that you need a Savior. Great news, there is a Savior in Jesus Christ who you can meet this morning. You cry out to him in faith to who he is, repent of your sins, and know that you have salvation. Or maybe you're one of those Christians who, you're a Christian who is saved, and you see yourself as a lawbreaker. You just feel the weight of condemnation and guilt, like you're never enough. Your identity, God just looking down on you and has you in prison, even though he kind of tolerates you. Good news of the gospel is to step into grace of a Jesus who was in prison for you, who experienced prison for you, died in prison for you, was released in the prison of sin for you, so that you never have to go there and you can experience full life of forgiveness and joy in Christ. Maybe you're over there and you realize that you're a law enforcer, that you've been in Christianity long enough that you really, really like telling people what to do. And you really, really like pointing out sin and other folks and you very rarely see it in yourself because you think you're doing just fine. Thank you very much. Maybe the Lord is using this to break you finally and show you that that is no way for a Christian to live. That is a way for a Christian to do harm to himself, to church, and others. And the Lord is inviting you to the grace of Jesus where God has not put you as the law enforcer. He does that quite fine himself. That he's given you the freedom to live your life as one who is free to love others rather than to enforce the law upon them. And that may mean telling them hard things, but you're not telling them hard things to get them in line. You're telling them hard things because you love them. And it may mean that you can just keep your mouth shut some and that you can encourage because God's not honor is not on the line. God will protect and vindicate himself. This is a really good job of it. So maybe you're a repenting law enforcer or maybe what I've told you just resonates for you and you just needed to hear that again and you're just over here and you know that the grace of God is beautiful and wonderful and Jesus is amazing and you've begun in small baby steps to every day wake up and open the preference pane of your heart and reset the default buttons that every time you go to the law, you've started to have some sort of memory. Wait, 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 that's bad. I don't need to go over there. I don't need to use the law to try and be right. I can stay with Jesus in grace. I can wake up today and know my failings and successes cannot commend me or demote me in God's sight, that I can live today knowing that he delights in me and loves me. And what you probably found is that you're actually more of use to the people around you and to your community into the places that you serve and the places you work and to your kids than if ever you went over there to the law category. The Lord loves you. Paul loved the Galatians enough to write this. The Lord loved, it, loved us enough to preserve this in the letter to Galatians and put it in this thing called the Bible that we would hear it today. There is such grace and joy. And if you're thinking for a moment, if you've caught a glimpse in my poor preaching that it could be true that there would be that much joy in a Jesus that amazing, it is so much better than that. I encourage you to step into that joy and that faith to know you can confess, you can live, you can rejoice, and you can weep. You can do all of those things in the free, awesome gaze, acceptance, and approval of the Lord God that was earned for you in Christ. That is the beauty of Christ's faith. Let me pray for us and let's sing. Father, we love you. What amazing grace that you would save a people by faith and that you would love us and put us in a community where we can begin to work this out called a local church. Help us, Lord. Please, we pray.
We are weak, we are needy, we are people of limited resources and low capacity. We need your Holy Spirit. We need to see Jesus. Help us, Lord God. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Won't we stand and respond um, by singing before the throne of God above? <laughs>